Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Hello, everyone in uh, podcast land. It's Charles Marshall here in for Neil. And today is August 12th, 2021. And we have a very interesting program today. We're going to get into the nuts and bolts of some recent case developments. Uh, One is a judicial foreclosure matter out of New York. As many listeners will know, I often dissect and recount the details of matters various regarding non-judicial foreclosure cases and trends, developments, situations, particularly those in the state of California where I practice. Uh, nevertheless, we do, of course, have tons of listeners all over the country, and especially in states like New York, Massachusetts, Florida, where judicial foreclosures are the foreclosure process. So this case is, uh, as I say, pretty interesting. It's a New York appellate case that was just decided uh, back in early May, May 19th. Uh, Well, I guess you'd call it mid-May. And it essentially was looking at whether Deutsche Bank as the so-called mortgagee. Remember, this is a judicial foreclosure state. So, foreclosing on a specific party. And in case it's referenced at the, you know, New York as Deutsche Bank. the judicial foreclosure process was completed, I suspect without further review in this particular case, they did not. That's going to somewhere in the solution. Any listeners that have uh, Neil, Neil is always 
straightforward to get a hold of. Just go to his blog, and you can link and find his wealth of information and access all kinds of aspects, foreclosure-related and legal-related there. So this case, essentially, at the lower level, it was proceeding as so many of the types of cases do. Uh, did Deutsche Bank show up to court with the note, or did they have the kind of primary evidence that you would expect them to provide if they showed up to trial? Remember, this case was won on summary judgment. I wouldn't say that that's extremely unusual. I wouldn't say that that's common in foreclosure cases. Um, unlike in non-judicial foreclosure cases like those in California where the homeowner is plaintiff, when you're on the defendant's side, there's theoretically a little bit uh, more protections for you for purposes of ending off a summary judgment motion, which is not to say that these summary judgment motions aren't often uh, successful in the foreclosure arena. As I say, um, it's not going to be like a situation where, oh, you're going to see them winning all the time the way you, you, you so often do at a non-judicial front. Uh, but even, you know, in a place like California, where the lenders often prevail, there are ways to derail summary judgments, and uh, a lot of the courts will look at and entertain those. Um, suffice to say here, affidavits are the legal and practical reason why this Deutsche Bank plaintiff was able to steamroll this homeowner. Court let at least at the lower level stage, even for summary judgment purposes, the court let the evidentiary requirements that are always going to crop up in these cases, and they come whether or not there's a, a sort of discovery piece that's both uh, informing the evidentiary chain and providing oftentimes a lot of the evidence for that chain or where the the discovery scenario is used more to run interference for either the plaintiff or defendant depending on depending on who's maximizing you know the, that scenario so here while the affidavits were initially accepted to show basically evidence and who were the affidavits from? Well, the affidavits for Deutsch related to possession of the note or the bonafides related to that. They were um, from an officer, kind of a typical scenario. Oh, he reviewed the business records. Oh, he reviewed the books. Oh, he reviewed the supposed bonafides showing a proper chain of custody for the note and a proper providence for the note, that kind of thing. Um, this appellate court rightly looked at this, and, and I think their holding is uh, pretty, it's a 
substantial, and I think it can be certainly uh, used as as uh, even limited precedent and possibly beyond that, depending on New York state law and how appellate uh, matters uh, get traction in future cases. I can see it be, being used in judicial foreclosures in the various states in, in some capacity, even if it's just for framing purposes, and the court, I think, made clear that these affidavits and these scenarios are not going to pass muster. There actually has to be some kind of evidentiary presentation about the note, Uh, ideally the physical note itself, not that that would appear in the legal case, uh, you know, sometimes a certified copy would be required. I don't even know that that's the case in many in, in many situations. Here, of course, the problem is a lack of evidence. And typically, the Deutsche Banks of the world get away with that in these situations. And they don't really present genuine first-level evidence of possession of the note. But here they weren't able to get away ultimately, even though they did initially with this really probably in the event pretty generic affidavit saying, yeah, this officer reviewed blah, 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 business records, blah, blah, blah. And the appellate court rightly said, no, that's not going to cut it you need much higher level of particularity. You need to really show the note or a much more specific chain of events accounting that you really do possess the note. And they came forward with a similar analysis related to the other key element of this uh, case. And again, interestingly enough, this is a case that not only I think can have relevance and, and even be used to get some traction in judicial foreclosure cases, particularly, of course, those in New York. I think even in, in a non-judicial foreclosure, uh, you know, framework, this holding could be quite helpful for homeowners. So here, the other piece of this case was Though I'm not familiar with the particulars, I'm certainly familiar with the framework. And in judicial foreclosure states, just like non-judicial foreclosure states, when you initiate foreclosure, there are predicate communications you need to make to the party you're foreclosing. And oftentimes, statutorily, the way you make those communications Sometimes it's even by phone call if you're the servicer. Uh, Oftentimes it's sort of a companion requirement for certain pieces to the notice. Oftentimes you would need as the servicer or as the nominal trust holder when you're contacting the homeowner to tell them we're foreclosing on you, you need to send them some kind of certified letter, some kind of, of letter you can show was actually mailed. Uh, certification um, requirement is not absolutely ironclad. But fortunately, the law is moving more away from first-class mail. I think 
first-class mail, frankly, is a relic absolutely of the 20th century. I mean, one of the signs that we are here in the 21st century is that it's a misplaced joke to allow first-class mail to be legal service of anything. There's absolutely no way to know once you put that mail in the mailbox, leave it to the postal service, however you're getting it out. There is absolutely no way to know whether it's going to be mailed or not. And when it has great legal consequence, I think listeners to this show of all stripes and from wherever you may be, and for those of you listening on behalf of lenders, as I some say, uh, as, I, as I inevitably say, even if churlishly, uh, welcome. Yes, welcome to all. Welcome one, welcome all. So the bottom line here, in terms of the New York case, is that uh, they were found on, by the appellate court to have to actually provide real meaningful notice, and they have to have the bona fides, and they have to have the tracking, and they have to be able to present the evidentiary trail for that in a court of law. I mean, these are important holdings to essentially reduce in the future the ability of, um, you know, the institutional uh, players in these cases from otherwise using what are really the best spin that could be put on them as their generic affidavits. I think there's probably a more accurate legal term in that, but I will not... uh, I will not visit that, even though I will make my usual disclaimer that anything I say on this broadcast today is part of a podcast. It's simply uh, an opinion of mine, which I impart on this uh, show the every other Thursday that I'm on this podcast to give my take on foreclosure matters. Uh, so the other interesting uh matter, sort of case aspect that we're going to be talking about today relates to something that uh, Bill Padalow has been looking at. And by the way, Bill Padalow was going to be joining us today on this uh, program. Uh, He had uh, a quite severe allergic reaction to a hornet sting. And uh, I haven't been stung by a hornet since I was a kid, but Boy, do I remember how much that hurt. And when you have an allergic reaction, easting-wise, I think all listeners will know that's a very big deal. So uh, I'm sure Bill will be back soon, uh, and I do hope that uh, God in the universe takes care of him in the meantime. So... Uh, Bill's piece today was going to be talking about this Nation Star deposition transcript that he's come across. And it's quite interesting is the deponent in the case, um, the robo-witness. And, you know, that would be typically who you would target as a deponent from the uh, homeowner side in these cases. 
uh, Bill's analysis here, I think, is, 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 is potentially quite useful to, to, to homeowner litigants while they're in either judicial foreclosure litigation or non-judicial foreclosure litigation. I mean, essentially, he's saying you can, based on the information not provided by this robo witness, you can do a takeaway from the way this particular deposition went down and you can direct, you know, future uh, deposition demands on the heads of financing departments, for instance. Because one of the aspects here that, of course, the uh, homeowner has every right to know is, well, you know, where's the money trail? I mean, where is there any proof that, according to the PSA, these particular institutional players were compensated for a number of events connected to the mortgage origination. And what Bill uh, unearthed is that that type of financial trail, proof of payments, nothing there. Not traceable in terms of what was presented in the lawsuit, not made available in written discovery despite prompts that requested and required that information. And so the robo-witness was basically saying, robo-signing witness, someone in the financing department will have that information. And the other interesting thing uh, Bill uncovered when looking at his deposition transcript, and I believe Bill will have it, the particular details for those who want to follow up on this uh, particular case, get more details. You should be able to get that by contacting Bill. Um, so the other two pieces to this, they purchased the assets but can't prove any consideration, meaning supposedly the institutional player connected to the deponent they were able to show in litigation some evidence of purchase of the asset, but, you know, in other words, if they're in a chain of title and supposedly uh, put forward some consideration at some point, and yet there's no evidence for that, and there's no paper trail for that, and there's no accounting trail for that. So that's... uh, illuminating as well, and I think that's worth following up on. Uh, so the remainder of the show today, I'm going to be doing uh, my COVID update. And, you know, it would be good uh, if we could get a unified kind of national policy on the COVID front. I think because of the nature of the COVID crisis, and now, as I'm calling it, the huge architectural legal framework that's grown up in every single legal uh, jurisdiction in the United States, state, you know, counties are simply arms of the state. Cities are arms of counties. It's all state authority. Um, but the, the bottom line is, the, the, the COVID craziness or the COVID crap, as I call it, is going to continue 
<clears throat> for the foreseeable future, potentially well beyond that, in terms of the eviction and uh, foreclosure moratorium at the national level, the CDC has, uh, whether their authority is bonafide or not, all subject to all kinds of uh, challenges and has been challenged in this specific case. But for right now, uh, the CDC and this authorization is standing as we speak here on August 12th. They have reauthorized the uh, eviction moratorium to apply through October 3rd. Uh, The national foreclosure moratorium, the matter there is more complicated and as for that, I think one of the best sources of information is going to be state authority wherever you live and then county authority. If you live in a big enough city like San Francisco or L.A., well, you have to, you have to acknowledge city authority. Um, so, and, you know, there is a leading trend and uh, I do think it's appropriate to mention this now uh, because remember, a borrower, a homeowner, who is litigating, whether they're litigating uh, on the non-judicial foreclosure side of the plaintiff or whether they're being litigated against, the, uh, the world's on the other side trying to take their home. There they are as a defendant. Any state that's very COVID crazy, like California, and I believe you'll see somewhat a similar trend in New York to what I'm talking about. I mean, New York already has so-called vaccine passports. Um, so far, those are restricted to what one might vaguely describe as entertainment uh, locations. Things like bars, restaurants, theater, that type of thing. California, the city of Los Angeles, has already passed a, re- a recent, uh, I think it should frankly be called an edict. Theoretically, it's an ordinance. It's still by, it's still by fiat, and it's essentially mandating that one show proof of vaccine or a recent negative COVID antibody test uh, before um, going into a number of public places, like even, even regular stores. I haven't been able to figure out yet whether it would apply to grocery stores, but this is meant to apply to basic retail establishments. So the level of intrusion of the COVID regime is becoming greater and greater and greater. And I'm sure listeners are all over the board. Uh, and your, 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 uh, your seats out here in podcast land, and I'm sure listeners are of every possible view from we need an absolute COVID dictatorship and it should last forever and apply to all flu-type illnesses to a uh, hyper-libertarian even anarchist point of view, which would hold that no restrictions of any kind should be uh, supported by by uh, 
government and they should be forbade to apply in retail environments. I mean, obviously, the the predicate for that would be the civil rights legislation uh, going back to the even late 50s, certainly early 60s, applying to uh, religious affiliation, applying to ethnicity, applying to a number of demographic demographic characteristics whereby you can't you can't exclude people on that basis from even basic retail establishments. Even if you the retail uh, provider, so to speak, were, were to choose so. So where am I going with all this? I'm going to where I think trends are headed, and I think that's something that it's important for me to discuss uh, on the uh, on the Neil Garfield show when I see a trend. I can see a scenario where there are going to be vaccine passports um, coming to the um, California terrain, certainly in L.A., certainly to the courts. In other words, I can see a, a day not years away, maybe months, maybe even weeks, where access to courts is going to be dependent on whether you take a certain vaccine or not. And so that's the uh, direction this is all headed. Uh, So those of you who are litigating, if you haven't already, whatever your thoughts are, by the way, on this philosophically, programmatically, medically, whatever your perspective is, I think you are doing due diligence to know that you may be in a position personally where you have to demonstrate some kind of vaccine status. And again, I think, you know, I can't prognosticate, you know, months and years out. I think one would be naive regardless of how they have these issues to think that this, oh, this is, oh, about this particular vaccine, that somehow this particular vaccine will or will not be mandated in this court form, for instance, but somehow that's just a one-off and it will never be expanded beyond that. I think these requirements absolutely will be expanded, whatever one thinks of them. And I think they can apply certainly to a scenario where you would need to do booster shots if you're doing the vaccine now to keep your compliance to, for instance, access basic court services. So, the caveat, of course, in terms of court access is that you could get access if, hypothetically, you're showing up to your, your case presentation, either pro or as an attorney, you know, through Zoom, through an online platform, through some sort of remote platform, whether it's video or audio. I will say, though, a lot of retail uh, environments, by retail I mean that in the broadest sense, colleges, for instance, some colleges, even if you um, are going to be 100% accessing the learning content via the Internet, in other words, remotely, they still have a vaccine requirement. And so if you're going to enroll, even for uh, remote learning, you must take a vaccine. And how that applies to the core environment is, again, there's, there's, there's a number of, there are a number of trends 
that have sort of progressed in the COVID era. And the level of intrusion gets greater and greater and greater every month, now every week. So you might see a scenario where, whether it's the vaccine or maybe some other COVID requirement, that you essentially prove that you've registered, prove that you've uh, acknowledged before even accessing court services over the Internet. I don't think that that's woo-woo talk. I think, unfortunately, that's the direction we're heading. So on that note, I will uh, bid all our listeners a good day, and Neil will be back next week. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.